You're listening to The New Paris. If this episode sounds a bit different and runs a lot longer than usual, it's because it's a special one. It's a recording of a discussion hosted at the American Library in Paris on June 12th. I was invited to speak on a panel about French feminism with three fellow journalists I admire greatly, Roqueya Diallo, Alice Pfeiffer, and Lauren Collins, who moderated the discussion and has previously been a guest on this show. There were some technical issues with the recording, however, and as a result, the first question from the talk is missing. I hope you'll forgive any sound discrepancies you might encounter as you listen, but it was important for me to share the discussion nonetheless, particularly for those who couldn't make it and requested a recording. I hope you'll find the talk as interesting and enlightening as I found it to be as a participant. Thank you, Audrey. Thank you so much, all of you, for being here tonight. And thank you to the panelists. Um, we have a really great group tonight, all of uh, whose work I very much admire and learn from. So um, we will begin. Women, wake up. The alarm bell of reason sounds throughout the universe. Recognize your rights. The powerful empire of nature is no longer surrounded by prejudice, fanaticism, superstition, and lies. The torch of truth has dispersed all the clouds of folly and usurpation. Enslaved man has multiplied his, multiplied his force and needs yours to break his chains. Having become free, he has become unjust toward his companion. Oh, women, women, when will you cease to be blind? What advantages have you gathered in the revolution? That was Olympe de Gouges writing in 1791 to protest the way the egalitarian ideals of the, of the revolution hadn't extended to women. Um, the Declaration of the Rights of Women and Female Citizens was not adopted. De Gouges had been annoying people in Paris for a long time. Um, one of her contemporaries, I'll let you guess whether it was a man or a woman, said, Madame de Gouges makes you want to give her razor blades as a present. Um, the declaration was dedicated um, to Marie Antoinette, and Olympe de Gouges also went to the guillotine, um, along with the dedicatee of those words. Um, I'm beginning this way to say that the struggle um, for equal, equal rights for women has been going on for a long time. And this is where we ran into technical troubles. Let's jump ahead to the rest of the conversation. Rukaya, you've been on the forefront um, of the fight to get people to think about whether racism and sexism are sort of siloed in France and how it might benefit both struggles for them to be um, approached together. Can you can you talk about that? Has that been a has that been a struggle to to get people to see that or talk talk to us about your work? So yes, uh, thank you for uh, for um, thank you thank to the American Library for inviting us. It's a great pleasure to have that talk here. Um, I can what I can say for, uh, about uh, intersectionality is that I think that we've we've had women of color being active in feminism, but they were not visible to the mainstream. So if we take France as uh, the only country who is uh, on five continents, meaning that we are also in other islands that are in, in, the, in the Caribbean, in the Indian Ocean, we've, we've had women of color f uh, fighting the fight for feminism for a long time, but they were not visible. And the other thing is that um, the Republic, the French Republic, conceives itself as being universalist, but they have, there has always been a double standard in the way women were treated. For example, uh, in the 70s, in the early 70s, abortion was, uh, was, was, um, wasn't, uh, wasn't authorized in France, in the, in the French mainland, but at the same time, the government uh, considered, not the government, but locally, it was considered that uh, women in uh, La Réunion, which is uh, the Réunion island in the Indian Ocean, uh, had too many kids, too many children, so that many of them was, were forced to abort. At we know that's that's a discourse yes. that it's, Macron, it's, for instance, has yes. kept up for About today African in, in Africa. Yeah. Yes, it's, he said Macron, Macron, Emmanuel Macron said like four times that uh, African women had much um, too too much children and that it was the reason for poverty. 
So at the, at the time uh, when uh, French women, so white French women in the mainland were fighting for their rights uh, to, uh, to, to, to just to access, to, to access abortion in La Réunion, uh, women were forced uh, to, 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 they were sterilized or you know, forced, to, forced to, to, to abort. So there, there was, that, so that there, were, that there have always been that double standard. And, and the thing is that we are speaking now about intersectionality, but in the late 70s, there was a group called La, Co La Coordination des Femmes Noires uh, that was uh, that was led by uh, Awatiam uh, and that was part of the, like, the MLF, which was the mainstream feminist group. But it was totally forgotten. And the thing is that we don't have, we didn't re we didn't well document the fights of uh, women in the colonies, women even in the French mainland who were women of, of color, so that the new uh, generations of feminists who are. Uh, who are from immigrant or colonial descent don't really know what happened before them, and I think that what is what really characterized France characterizes France is the fact that we erase every generation erase the the, the memory of the the, the former generations. It, and it's the same for all the fights that are related to especially to racial issues. So today it's very difficult uh, as a feminist to make people understand that uh, we need to focus on specific issues, whether you are a Muslim woman, a black woman, an Asian woman, you have certain, um, certain specificities, specificities that need to be addressed. And when you do so, you are seen uh, as challenging the universal uh, ideology. And you are perceived as being divisive. So you're called communitarist. And, uh, and and the, 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 the mainstream feminists, who are mostly white, call themselves universalists. And to me, they are white, they're not universalists, but to them, they feel that white means universalism. So it's something that's very difficult to make people understand because when you label someone uh, to focus on the fact that the person is, uh, is, 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 uh, belongs to a, to, um, to a group that is, that is uh, stigmatized, you're seeing as uh, uh, questioning the, the very core uh, ideology of France. So how do you cope with that? I mean, what are some of your strategies for trying to explain to people that, no, you're not universal, you're white? <laughs> or what, what, what's been successful or what's been effective for you? I think that the change has occurred thanks to social media. It was very difficult because uh, the, 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 what was visible, what was public, was controlled by the people who had po the power to give a microphone to the people that they uh, consider as being uh, relevant. But uh, the fact that we have now uh, social media, that we, you have uh, younger generations of feminists who are able to voice their, con their concerns, really changed the game because it's very difficult for mainstream media now to ignore what they say. So um, what I say, for example, to a group of feminists who think that they are universal, that they are not, that they are white, I'm called racist. <laughs> because, you know, we believe very strongly here that anti-white racism exists. So I'm, I'm seen as, as, as being the person who uh, constantly um, reminds that race exists, and you you may not be familiar with the fact that uh, last summer the word uh, race was, was erased from the constitution. It was in the first article of the constitution. So because we we believe so strongly that race doesn't exist, that we don't have to mention it in any legal uh, document. So it was erased because when you speak about race, people think about biology, not as race as a social construct. Right, it's associated with Nazis. Yes, with, exactly, yeah. exactly. So there is a trauma because of the war. And, uh, and it's very difficult to make people understand that race, of course, we're all the same. We all have a red blood. And I'm sure that yeah, there is no difference, no human difference between people based on their, on, their, on their ethnicity. But we are not seen in the same way and we are not treated in the same way. And the fact that the word race was erased from the constitutions, the constitution tells a lot about how deeply we are trying to, 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 um, to how can I say that to ban any 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 discourse that would be re, uh, related to race? Well, Alice, one of the places where um, all of these um, you know feelings <laughs> um, often coalesce is is fashion, um, is clothing. You know, for instance, um, <coughs> there was a kind of polemic, as we have to say, here about decathlon recently, which offered um, a hijab. Um, 
for women to play sports in, and you know there was all kinds of drama. And I don't know, did they end up? They ended up keeping it. it. No, they pulled it. They pulled it it from the stores. Um, So, talk to us a little bit about um, why why clothing is so important in so many of these fights, and also whether um, whether you think that French feminism sometimes. you know, tips into the policing of, of women's bodies or... Well, first of all, I think it's in, in, in the language used around things. For example, um, what we call shampoo for straight hair is called pour cheveux normaux, for normal hair. <laughs> and then makeup that's for, for, for darker skin is le coin ethnique, the ethnic corner. So all of this has meant that the, the, the main customer is always white, except doesn't want to be addressed as such. It's like they're, they're neutral, you know, the, the term nude ou couleur chair means beige, you know. And But the problem the French are having is that we're also a big luxury a country uh, with big luxury groups, and the main people buying are in large part coming from the Middle East. So there's this problem of the good Arab and the bad Arab. So while all the main houses might produce... You know, they, they produce hijabs, like, like we see Dolce & Gabbana produces hijabs for the Middle East, yet other brands, um, well, or, or the same brand, won't even sell it in the same country. I remember a fast fashion brand, you can probably guess, who produces hijabs in throughout Europe, and the one country it didn't want to sell to, uh, wasn't where it wasn't accepted, was France, and it said to me, on ne veut pas de cette clientèle, we do not want of this clientele, meaning that what they see as Arab or black is... Uh, intersex with this um, sort of post-colonial youth, you know, so youth of colonial descent uh, associated to the banlieue, and, but they still profit from the Arab, other Arab era money. So it's two markets conflicting, um, but it's very much, uh, it's, it's, it's associated to, to sort of working class from second generation immigrants that, that are called Kaira, which is a terrible word, which means sort of thuggish, Kids and um, and I was I was I mean I have a million anecdotes I was ordered not to order an Arab intern because uh, to, to hire an Arab intern because they steal and that comes from a big fashion magazine I worked at one point um, so I think people come to find a myth and the myth is a white myth and the French woman is a white woman and from Marianne to Miss France. It's it's the majority is 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 always a thin wavy white woman who doesn't you know who's as straight and isn't Saint Germain probably with a baguette under her arm. You know? So how are how are you deconstructing that notion in your book? Well, I look I, I read the definitions of one woman called Inès de la Fressange, mm-hmm. and if you look at it, if you look at everything all the steps that she describes it's 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 all it's all between the lines. So she's like, don't brush your hair, and you're like, well, you don't have curly hair clearly. You like. And then she says, buy, wear vintage Chanel, so you come from a family that owns Chanel. And then she says, just wear boyfriend jeans, so you're straight. And um, okay. and then, well, don't wear cashmere sur peau, uh, no, no bra, as Sonia Riquier once said. So you're tiny and skinny. So there you go, there, who is that woman who is skinny, has a boyfriend, is white, and comes from Chanel. You know? <laughs> Boom, there she is. Uh, and that's the universal uh, figure that we have because remember, comes from Inez de la Fressange who's made a, a business about it, who was Marianne and the muse of Karl Lagerfeld for a long time. So that's been an iconic French figure. And that has moved on to. It hasn't moved on. The magazine. I, I wonder, and she did Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it was just to say that, you know, Karl's additional muse was Caroline de Maigret, who's a little bit more rock and roll, but still exhibits the same character traits. Skinny. Oh, there's a million now. But they're, but they're all sort of a variation on a theme. Yeah. Yeah. And you know who were not muses were the um, Women's World Cup team, the French team. I just read in the newspaper that um, TF1 uh, had wildly underestimated uh, the amount of interest that spectators would have in the women's team. Um, the first game came on last week. 10 million people watched on TV, which was exactly the same number as the number of people who watched the men's, the first men's game in the World Cup. And Téléphone is um, raising... It's interesting. These are real questions of business, and it's unbelievable how people whose, whose job it is to know these things 
underestimate women. TFL is raising their ad rate 50% for the rest of the games. That's how much money they lost by underestimating women on the first one. People still, um, I mean, it's been said time and time again that equality and proper representation of women and also, you know, just a more diverse population is good for business. That statistically has been shown, and yet that is not what's being executed in companies. So it's not surprising that they undervalued. I mean, women are constantly sort of, oh, surprise, we're here, you know? Right. We, we're over half the population, but we're still fighting to be seen. Um, and I think that's a testament to the, the way women have always been perceived. And that's a, that's a fight that's the same here in the United States, in the UK. We're inferior, and we've got this sort of monster, not monster, but this like monster mountain we're climbing constantly, and then every so often we're thrown a little obstacle and we keep stepping back. And to your point, you know, the way you started this discussion with thoughts from what the 18th century that are still, you know, you, you could that could be from today. And so the fight is is ongoing, and it's very troubling that it's ongoing to the same to the same extent. President Macron declared um, equality between men and women the grand cause of his five-year term. Um, what do we think? <laughs> Discuss. <laughs> the, only, the only thing I'll say with, about that first, and I'm going to pass it on to you, is, is that the UN just reported that no country in the world is, on, is, is, is slated to reach gender parity by 2030. So it's really nice that he has that objective, but he's not doing much to actually get there. And you know, even when it comes to PMA, which is um, you know IVF treatments for for women in this country, are uh, not authorized if you're a single woman or you're in a lesbian couple. Um, Although that will be on the slate with the bioethic in September law. In September, but they've right. been, but the, you know, the women who are affected by this have been fighting to get this on the docket from. You know, long before Macron was president. So it's just these things that, you know, one might say, oh, but it's not that important of an issue, except it really is for women. It's just another thing to add to the list uh, where women have to consistently fight to be like, no, this is important because it means this is my life and it's a quality of life thing. Um, and it shouldn't, you know, there, there's enough time and enough energy to, to discuss all sorts of issues, but that one keeps getting marked down. Right. Mm. Um, I think, I, I mean, coming from someone who's just to erase the word race, he doesn't have many non-white friends, so I don't know which woman he's talking about, but it's clearly women around him. I think, I think he just instrumentalizes his wife, if you want my opinion, to get the like to get the the. Um, the appreciation of LGBT groups and, and women groups because I remember when he was accused of being gay his response was actually quite clever but coming from a businessman not a president he said that would mean I'm homophobic and and that would mean that a man who's attracted to an older woman is therefore not is, is therefore gay so he's he's he has these clever twists and uh, of words but behind it there's nothing I mean what does he what does he change the pay rate is it is um, the, the gap is still there. SNCF recently proudly announced that they only pay women thirty percent less than men, and they made a whole ad campaign about it. Chez nous, seulement 13 de moins. I mean, I remember working at, at a, da a daily magazine, and I remember the guy sitting next to me uh, was had exactly the same position and was just paid more for absolutely no reason. And they said, "Oh, it's just an old code that we have," you know. So um, I think it's um, I think he's talking as a startup dude, you know, and, and I don't think it's there's much much strength behind it. I mean, I think maybe what we could give him credit for is the fact that the um, the first class of député um, for his party, the gender parity was very good. I mean, it was, okay, very good for gender parity, 47%. We'll take it. Um, but I'm, I'm interested to hear what, what you have to say on that account. To me, the first thing to do if um, he really wanted to uh, make that uh, promise meaningful would be to have an actual minister of uh, women's rights. She's a secretary, yeah. which is not a minister. It's, a, it's, an, it's, it's not the same level of uh, power. It means when you are when you're not a minister but a secretary, it means that you have no administration and you have no money. So she has 
uh, much visibility in the media, but she actually doesn't have the means to do what she's supposed to do. And just just to add to what you were saying before, she is a former blogger, which is which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she 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 from she comes from the blogging sphere. She used she started a blog which was named Ismail and Shaba, Maman Travail. So about. Ah, uh, uh, yes, she wrote a book. It, it was a book, right? It was a sexual, yeah, it was a sex book called Dare to Sleep with a Round, a Curvy Woman. She also wrote a book about, called Rape Culture, which introduced that. So she's an interesting figure. I'm interested to hear you talk about her. She's, yeah, she's written a lot of things. <laughs> Lots of things. And uh, she's supposedly uh, in charge also of discrimination, but uh, I've really? never, yeah. It's in, it's in the long line of uh, <laughs> what's... Uh, so... The thing is that, you know, we, uh, under uh, François Hollande, even if it was not enough, there was a minister of women's rights. Najat Vallée-Belkacem was a minister, so she, 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 did, she was not in the same range. So I think that there is much communication uh, around Marlene Schiappa, but, what, but she, 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 she's not um, really able to do what she's supposed to do. And uh, you, you talk about what uh, Emmanuel Macron um, said several times in Africa, but saying, you know, blaming on women who has who have too ma too many children, and saying that they are the reasons for poverty in Africa is like just it's insane. It's um, it, but but to me it means a lot about uh, the way he sees development, and I wanted to also to. Just to uh, to go back to what you said about the, the the controversy around the hijab, it was very interesting because so Decathlon, which is a French brand, decided to just to to uh, to make hijab hijabs from women who wanted to run with a hijab. So it should don't have been a big deal, but it was so. Uh, a controversy started from um, people on Twitter, but also people in the government, and everybody said it was legal to make hijabs, but. French values were conflicting, conflicting with the, 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 the making of hijab. So you mean that there is the law and there is something above the law, which is French values. And, and who decides what, is, what are those values and at some point, how can they affect something which is legal? So the controversy was so, so rough that at some point, Decathlon, Decathlon decided to withdraw the hijabs because uh, their employees were threatened by people. They, they, they said that if you have those in your store, we will come and beat you. So for the safety of the employees, they had to withdraw it, which you know should be a controversy, but it wasn't. And you had like the president of the Senate, uh, Gérard Larcher, who said, yes, but you cannot sell everything in the name of money, making money coming from someone from the right. Like, we are in a capitalist country, so we are supposed to encourage companies where, where, where they find, when, when they find a market, and they found uh, a market, uh, tried to make it profitable, and because of the French values, uh, we decided to withdraw it. And what is interesting about the difference between the universalist fem feminists and the others is that the, the controversy was mostly led by feminists because they say that uh, as a woman you are supposed to be free and you cannot be free with a hijab. So you are you have to be free in the way that we uh, in the way we decide to. So being free means be looking uh, like what is uh, supposedly a French woman, and you have had for like. 30 years, those French feminists who are fighting for uh, the, the rights of Muslim women, silencing them and forcing them to not to not to go out of their home or to just to remove the hijab. And it's it's um, it's to me it's very it's very specific to hear because you you promote the fact that um, any woman should be able to do whatever she wants to do with her body, but Muslim women. They have, if they have, if they want to be seen as feminist and to be respected, they have to speak without a hijab. And you would, you would rarely see a hijab woman speaking for herself in the public sphere. Like they have been debating about for thirty years. Like uh, the first uh, controversy was in 1989 in the in Ukraine, uh, which is in the, in the French uh, the French banlieue. But you never see them, them speaking for themselves. And to me, universalism is that way of patronizing. A category of women who are not French enough to decide for themselves for themselves how they should they should treat their own bodies. 
That puts me in mind of um, of the Me Too movement, of the Balance Tempore movement. Um, there was a lot of debate. I guess it was maybe it was two years ago now. Um, but when all these, you know, and in France as in America, um, this movement, you know, unleashed this great outpouring of of people's stories. I mean, I, I know also you've had a lot um, with your new book. You've heard a lot of stories of, of people being, um, you know, humiliated or underestimated in the workplace. But so all these stories start coming out. And then some women, Kathleen Deneuve most prominently among them, publish um, an opinion piece in Le Monde which says rape is a crime, but hitting on someone insistently or awkwardly is not an offense, nor is gallantry as chauvinist aggression. Now, my alarm bells start to go off when I hear rape is a crime, but. Um, but what I want to know is, first of all, did this piece represent something specific to French feminism? Was it a French thing? Was it a class thing? Um, what, what do we make of that? I think that there was something interesting in the in the in the in the column because uh, it was said that uh, there is there was there was a right to to annoy. Which could maybe be anything from bugging someone to like And there was really something getting... about, about when you take the subway, like you you know, you have the, the, the right to to, to, uh, to annoy and I don't see Catherine Deneuve in the subway. So it's like <laughs> <laughs> like what what are you speaking about? Like to, how do you know it's it's okay to be annoyed in the subway? You don't know. So I think that there was a class thing because she uh, obviously, there was there was a very romantic idea of the metro that was <laughs> that had nothing to do with what we experience when we take the metro. And uh, there is, to me, there is that this idea that there is uh, the seduction à la française. So there is a way uh, French men are, uh, behave that has nothing to do with with harassment, and that is supposedly uh, in our culture. And I, I, I and. It's interesting to connect that with the, all the hijab controversy because I have seen, um, I don't know if you've seen that on Twitter, the, the, the tweet from Jean Quatremer, who is a, a French journalist from Liberation. He was saying that it was, it was during the Decathlon controversy, he tweeted something saying that, yes, when you see a Muslim woman uh, with a hijab, it means that she would never uh, marry a, a non-Muslim man. And it's very violent to us. And... To me, it <laughs> because he's, he's not a non-Muslim, a non-Muslim white man. To me, it's 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 kind of like wearing a wedding ring. Yes, or exactly. something. Why do? You, why would you do that? It means that I can I cannot I cannot even see you. And to me, it has to do with the, the idea that uh, in the street, women are supposed to be accessible. Right. So if you wear a hijab, you're not part of the game anymore. Mm-hmm. And 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 it means that if you if you don't. You're supposed to be, you know, to be accessible, and you have that liberté d'opportunité that uh, applies to you. I mean, I think all these women come from a time where they were part of a sexual revolution. Sort of, Catherine Deneuve was in in Belle de Jour, and it's a story of a bored bourgeoise who uh, turns to prostitution for fun. And then Catherine Millet, who was the director of Art Press, and then wrote the shocking book uh, La Vie Sexuelle de Catherine M. But that was a different time. That was a different. Today, there's there's pornography everywhere. It's not. It's it's not the same idea at all, and it's it's just the idea that there's women who are more willing to stand up for someone of their own social class than rather than their gender. So, Catherine Deneuve stood up for Polanski, mm-hmm. and and she stood up for you know there were more. It's, it's the same women who stood up for Dominique Strauss-Kahn and not Nafisa Tudiello. So there's there's definitely in France a stronger um, social and and. Um, yeah, social class connection rather than, than uh, gender-based solidarity. Mm-hmm. And today, the sex discourse is—is is, I mean, it's 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 part of history now, and it's and there's not very much left of it. And those women are also, you know, they were—I believe—they were all white. And this sort of internalized misogyny that exists all over the world, which is why we have women who continue to vote against their own interests, because they still think that somehow the white man is going to save them, and they're going to be up, uplifted by this system uh, of, of inequality somehow. Um, but, but similarly, you know, um, these women are, due to their class and due to their experiences, are, are simply siding with the power systems that continue to allow them to 
flourish and, and, and keep rising. And so it's at once, I think, like you said, a very clear class issue. And then there's the idea that somehow, you know, you, you bring up the hijab again as a link, and that goes back to the Algerian war, where, you know, men were, th- th- these women were fetishized and they were exotic, and the fact that you couldn't see them, like, only sort of pushed them, f- the, the men further to want to sort of win that conquest. And so women, regardless of the situation, are continued to be, they're, they're objects. Um, and so it's just in this case, these women believe that, that there's nothing, I guess, inherently wrong with that and don't see the line as being too easy to cross. Talking about this, this sexualization, I mean, it's really interesting to see that in France there are zero Arab models because that's not how you imagine French luxury, yet it's the number one search on porn. There's a term called burette, which is awful, and it, it just means sexualized female Arab. And it's the number one. On, it's the number one search in in the country. Yet it's never the face of luxury. It's never the face of Marianne. It's never the face of any of it, of the country. But it's still, it's a source of excitement. So I think removing these women from that beret um, status and and choosing to wear the veil and not fall into the, the white man saviorism uh, aspect is something that made the French furious. You know, it was like losing a battle. Mm-hmm. Um, I think here's a final question, and then we'll um, be very happy to hear questions from you. Should French and American and other feminisms converge, um, or is there something valuable in in the particular particularity of um, you know? Are there useful differences, or is there a universal way to go forward for feminists? I think just recognizing your own privileges, you know, naming yourself white if you're white and recognizing that that's been a strength, you know, and then and, and recognizing what you have and what you don't have and also what you do have and what's an advantage uh, um, to, uh, in, with someone else, you know, like like being, recognizing that probably being thin and white and francophone and speaking English and being Franco-British rather than Franco-Algerian has probably helped me my whole life, you know. So I think the one thing we can do is recognizing what we what we have and um, to, to build stronger solidarity and like bridges between, between causes. Yeah, I was going to say that there's, there's, again, a million ways to be feminist and so there are similarities between all cultures and we could make that bridge between the US and France. Um, but I think it goes beyond these borders. And I think I keep going back to intersectionality because I think it's the only way you're going to ever fully put yourselves in, in the fight to end all sorts of oppressions. And so yes, the white woman is, is far less oppressed by nature of, of what she was born with. But in moving forward and supporting a cause and uplifting women, it really requires people to understand that there are certain opportunities that other people don't have and will never have because of everything else that comes with them. They're not just women. They are also a list of other things. And that there, there are factions within the, the feminist movement all over the world. In the U.S., you see sort of infighting, and that does nothing to but sort of build up the patriarchy even further. So I think we have limited resources, we have limited energy, and we need to all be sort of figuring out a way to remain solidaire and, and come together and, and see that this is not about pushing a white agenda. It has to be looking at all women as, as in their nuances and, and the things that they lack and work together to, to correct that. And uh, that's going to re- require sort of an a real dedication to what intersectionality really requires. Um, and unfortunately, there are certain generations of women in this country that are vehemently opposed to, to doing that. So I just would say regarding friends that maybe we just, we should um, step a little aside from ourselves. We tend to just analyze everything uh, from the French lens. And, um, and, and and I think that we tend to forget that um, we are, as I said, a country which is on five continents, which means that we have so many different, even in our, only in, inside the French borders, different stories, different histories of uh, feminism that we don't really take into, into take in, into account. I was just in Guadeloupe uh, like a couple of uh, weeks ago, and. You know the, the the story of women who are from you know enslaved descent is just 
so interesting and you know knowing that and including that in the way we see our history would be very fruitful so i think that um we for sure need to be as you said solidarity with other women from other countries and i'm sure that i was i was um, i was fortunate to have my, my family comes from senegal so i have that perspective uh, from two different continents and having you know the being fortunate to be in a country that is so um, so diverse means that we really need to need to to take it into account and to to just to for example we we spoke we spoke um, we spoke a lot about Muslim women. Uh, it for the the if you if you see Mayotte, which is a French territory, ninety five percent of the people there are Muslim. In La Réunion, you have so many different religions, and they have found a way to face that diversity in a very local way. So being inspired by what happens in other places than Paris would be very, very profitable. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, how are we going to do this for questions? So we're going to pass the microphone because we have some spectators out there behind. So please just raise your hand if you have a question. And well, I see a first question right there. And uh, the panelists will, will answer as they feel appropriate. Hi, I have a question for all four panelists. Uh, my name is Adek Young. I host the 51% on uh, France 24, a show about women's issues. Um, and I'm delighted to hear what you have to say. But one question I'd like to direct to uh, the panel is the generational difference. You know, the fact that we're talking about women behind that infamous letter, most of whom, not all of them, but most of whom were of a certain age. And I'm curious to know whether you know, particularly Alice and the others, whether you sense that there is a change in the way younger French women view feminism and that, you know, for me as a foreigner living in France for nearly a decade, one thing that strikes me, it's all about propping up the Latin male ego, um, which is uniquely French in a way, and whether as a result with younger women, to them that's irrelevant um, and that the time has come to move forward. I think the internet has helped loads. I think I think the millennial generation has managed to build communities that weren't in, in their immediate surroundings. So you might be the only black or Arab kid in an area, but suddenly there are online communities that would talk throughout the country. So um, no, I think I think they're much more aware. I think um, the internet has taught sort of globish English to everyone, which has brought in things such as uh, post-colonial studies and gender studies. So these have been brought in and are now taught in universities. So uh, I think I think the, the the younger the kids, the the more sort of um, culturally aware they are. What do you think? Yeah, I was going to say that, and I was also going to say that um, social media is a big a big help. Um, but also specifically since Me Too broke, um, I think a lot of women, young women especially, feel liberated to speak. Um, that sort of was a catalyst for all sorts of. Anger, you know, we see Rebecca Traster's book that you know uh, about being angry and angry women in the in the follow up, uh, you know, after Trump was elected, after all of these sorts of scandals broke. I think that says a lot about the climate we're in and the reaction to that. I know for me it was quite visceral. You know, I went from sort of having opinions but being sort of unsure of how to express them to now being irate and uh, just looking for other types of opinions, looking for other women uh, or looking to other women for how they express it, how they're living it, their stories. And so I think for younger women, it's sort of like you're not going to tolerate the things that a lot of women in previous generations tolerated. And that's also a product of our of our context, our, our unique time and place in, in history. So I, I mean, one of the women I just to give you an example that I spoke to for my for my next book, who had something very, she had very interesting things to say about motherhood, but one of the things she said, she's in her early 60s, she said, it really bothers me that women would choose to stay home today. We were fighting to have rights so that women could go back to work, and I feel like a lot of young people are now choosing to stay home, and that that's, you know, that's a real, that's a real shame that does a disservice to everything we've worked for, but today the fight is about choice, 
and that as a woman you if you want to stay home and you're and that is your genuine choice and no one is forcing your hand in that then that's what we want we want women to choose and the choice has not always been part of our experience um, same thing with the hijab if those women say that it is their choice we need to respect that and stop trying to to save them so to your point i think you know, that's just one example. There are, I'm sure there are older women who are very much more in line with the way we feel, but I do think that that must play into this a little bit. Okay, we have a question back here. Hello, uh, my name is Colleen. Um, I'd like to know if you, uh, you think that we're facing right now kind of a backlash um, I've been working on feminism since 10 years now and I never uh, saw this kind of violence when you talk about this subject, when you talk about uh, feminism and uh, race topics. I think people are going crazy. We saw that on social media, medias, the, the political uh, world is also really violent when it comes to those questions. So how can we organize ourselves and how can we fight back? <laughs> yes, it's 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 um it's violent, um, but I think it's it's violent because um, it has an effect. Like if you say something that has no effect, people will will ignore you. And I think that all the backlash that we're seeing, uh, the fact that ever since I say something about feminism of our race, I have like a major backlash on social media. Uh, it means that. There's something we um, we force people who had the means to ignore what we experience to hear us. Like before, we were speaking about those issues, but you know, among ourselves. Now we have the power to bring them to the public uh, to the public sphere, and it's very uncomfortable to people who have privileges because it's questioning their privileges and they have to deal with what with what we are saying and the violence to me is me, just means that they have to deal with what we say so it's not it's of course it's very difficult to face that but at the same time it means that what we say matters and um, and to me that's something it's at some point it's positive to have to have a response because if if it didn't if if we didn't have any any effect on, if we didn't affect uh, change, we, we would be ignored, simply. Hi, I'm an artist and I, my, I'm, I'm interested in addressing your perception of universality, this idea. My preoccupation is not with activism, it's not what I spend my life doing, although it's something that obviously I'm, I'm a, a sympathetic and connected to. And I think that there's, I mean, some people have said over the years that if, if women ruled the world, that it, we would be in a very different kind of world. So there is something that's inherent in every woman, and in one could say in the female part of men, that could enact a shift. And so obviously, yes, I understand that there's issues of ethnic and, and sexuality and religion and everything that also influence it, but there is, do you not believe that there's something that's universal among women and say the female part of men that needs to be addressed, that needs to be brought forward? Oh boy. I, have to... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's fair, I'll say something very short and then other people can speak, but I, I think where the the problem with the word universalism comes in in this conversation and in this context is just that it's often been used as a means of justifying decision-making by a group of people who, as Rakaia explained, do not represent a default baseline woman. It's a very specific, it's, it's you know, upper class. White women have often used universal to mean you know, to, to cover for not bringing other people into the movement. Um, so it's, that's my very simple answer. I mean, I, I think what you, your question is very interesting. And, um, you know, I think the universalism of women or the universalism of, um, yes, it's a given, I think, to people who are also talking about intersectionality that all women have common... <laughs> have some common political goals. 
Um, but but the problem is we can't use universal universality as a kind of euphemism um, for a certain a very narrow segment of women, and I think that's that's the history of that term um, in the in the debate about feminism. Let's not forget that Simone de Beauvoir was a French aristocrat who never addressed that and who sat throughout World War II in the Café de Fleur writing down the menus of the food she was having. So we need a bit of context in, in who wrote what texts and who had access to education. And, you know, it's like a room of one's own. Well, it's, it's, these, are, these are first world problems, you know, and these um, wanting to work. Women have always worked in, in low class background, you know, so... Um, Let's yeah. I think basing it on, on Beauvoir's thought is is, is a problem. Um, that's the end of my comment. <laughs> yes, what you said at the beginning about that the French Constitution no longer includes the word racism. Uh, French thinking to me, right? Race. I'm sorry. Uh, French thinking to me on this seems to be extremely confused. I fail to see how that in any way constitutes an advance. It's not as if having eliminated that word that in any way solves the problem of racism in France. In America, we do break individuals down, our communities down, our minorities down demographically. So we know exactly what the rate of unemployment among blacks black youths is. We know the rate of high school graduation and college graduation and France not in any way doing this, it gives them a perfect excuse to ignore the problem of minority unemployment, education, etc. So, yep. what do you think? Yes. yes. <laughs> exactly. I, I don't know if I can add, I can add something, but I, I totally agree. It's like, it's, um, it's denial. It's like, because uh, legally, either you're French or you're not. And, you know, among French people, you have no difference. <laughs> but at the same time, you know that if you are a, a black or Arab man, you are 20 times more likely to be checked by the police but than if you're not. And it's documented, something that we know. So being non-white affects your life, your everyday life, in, uh, when you're trying to find, uh, to find a job, when you're trying, even experiencing the streets, it's not the same. So I think that it's a, it's a way just to, to be de delusional about right. the fact that we have uh, issue of race. When I, for example, when I bring race in, in the debate, people say that I'm Americanizing the debate, and I, and I, <laughs> that I'm importing issues that I'm importing issues from the U.S. that don't exist here in France, because we have no race. It's not in the constitution. So, I, I believe I, I guess I don't exist as a black person here. <laughs> well, and the same thing. It's it by ignore not by ignoring it and denying that it exists. You don't have the tools to confront the racism that is going on, and so that is hugely problematic and and that's also the work that Rohokia is doing is really confronting that and then she gets backlash for trying to do that so you know in this case when you go to to the work that Rohokia is doing you know again her experience as a journalist and a woman is different from our experience and we have other things that you know we we're up against but you know those are those are big serious issues and so until France and I don't think it'll ever happen, to be honest, but until they can sort of detach this obsession with the national identity as being, you know, tied to this one image that isn't even realistic, we're going to keep facing the same, the same battles. Okay, we'll take one more question. Hello, I'm a, a retired educator. I used to teach in a public French university, and I had quite a few um, Muslim female students and um, we've tonight you've spoken a lot about the, the white male you, you haven't spoken about the um, the uh, the communities that some of these girls live in and um, I remember under Hollande there was a, a minister it was a, or a woman called Niput Nisumis or something like that and, and she brought up this issue she said that oftentimes there is um, pressure from the uh, the community uh, from the men and the brothers etc to to wear the hijab for example and uh, um, I had colleagues who were who were of North African descent and who were really against the veil they said we have as feminist North Africans we've really fought for this we don't want to see the veil in 
in a public university. I was wondering if you'd like to mention any of that. Thank you for, for your questions, your question, because it, it, we really need to, to make it clear. So I'm Muslim too, and I don't wear a hijab. My mother is covered. So to me, what's most important is what uh, you said, Lindsay, it's choice. Like, I don't want to force anyone to look as I look. So if a woman wants to wear hijab, we have to support her. But if she doesn't, we also have to support her in her free choice. And the minister you mentioned is Fadela Amara, who started an organization which was named Nipidni Sumi. She was a minister under Sarkozy. And the organization, it was, it was started, I think, in the early uh, 2000s. Uh, to support women in the banlieue who um, were um, facing uh, sexism in their communities. And the thing is that I think it was very necessary, but at the same time, I, I have the feeling that it was used as an excuse uh, to focus on a certain type of sexism and to excuse the rest of the society, like, oh, those people are so sexist, we need to support them, and not questioning the fact that if you are a Muslim woman in the banlieue, you are facing a sexism from your, in your community, but also also out of your community. If you're looking for a job, if you're trying to have equal pay, you are facing sexism. And so it puts us, I say us as a Muslim woman, in a very uh, difficult um, position because we know that there is a racist bias focusing on the, the men of your communities and not questioning the whole sexism, but at the same time we have to address that specific sexism. So there is, um, there, there was this idea that as a woman, a minority woman, you had to leave your community to be free. And it's very, you know, and you, you know, you have to 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 leave your brother, your father, because it it was the source of your oppression. Mm -hmm. And if you leave your community, you will be a French woman, and you will be free because you would be included in the republic. And that was the the, the issue I had with Nipuni Sumis because I stand with you know as I, I stand with them, but at the same time there was there were uh, there were used. I remember there was the face of uh, the women from Nipuni Sumis that was posted in front of the the Senate, like there, uh, all those women those women who were Arab and blacks with the the bonnet phrygien, you know the, the the hat that Marianne, the symbol of the Republic, has, and it was very funny because inside the Senate the the Senate. Uh, most of the elected officials were, were men. So what does it mean to say that you are a feminist, you know, having those, displaying those faces when you are not inside, uh, you know, have, uh, having, uh, uh, you know, uh, the same number of, uh, of women elected as, as it was, I think it was like 80% uh, male, uh, an 80% male assembly. So it was, to me, it was very hypocrite because, um, you know, it, it, it allowed us a group of you know universalists to 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 have that um, to give uh, the impression that they were feminists and not addressing their own sexism so it's um, yeah. <laughs> okay thank you so much everybody for being here again and for your questions and thank you to our panelists <laughs>